Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Liverpool Comedy Improvcast with me, Ian Luke-Jones. This is where we get to know the people who make up the LCI community and a place where we delve into all sorts of improv topics. And today I'm delighted to say that our guest is the incredible improviser and current cast member of Hollyoaks, it's Vera Chock. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We're even available on Amazon Podcasts, which means you can ask Alexa to play the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a five-star review and subscribe to the show to give us a boost and help get our name out there. And now it's time to go off script and find out Vera's true story about making stuff up. And please welcome to the show, Vera. Welcome, Vera. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm super excited to have you on the show and for the listeners to get to hear all about your improv journey. Gosh, it's a convoluted one, but hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump straight to that. Let's just find yeah. out how did you get into improv? Kind of by accident. Uh, the first improv class I did... I was talking to my friend um, Bex and she was like, oh, I'm doing an improv class tomorrow. It's this lady from LA. And I was like, oh, I was like in the doldrums and I was like, oh, maybe I'll come. And she's like, I think it's fully booked, but I'll just check. And someone had dropped out. And this is the night before someone had dropped out. I signed in, turned up. I had very little time to think about it, did it was kind of okay at it or something and that started started me off it was um annie from the groundlings annie certic said i can't pronounce her name <laughs> um anyway but for years before that i had been quite snobby about improv and i take it all back <laughs> so how long are we going back here I guess so. I went to drama school when um, in ninety. I want to say ninety five, No, that can't be right. Two thousand and five. <laughs> in two thousand and five, I went to drama school and I trained as a quote unquote traditional actor, learning lines, being all serious about emotions and stuff like that. And I think at the same time, I'd seen some terrible, terrible improv. And so the snobbish sort of actor side of me was like, what, what is this? This is terrible. Um, So I'd always thought that there wasn't, you know, any craft or skill behind improv until I realized a lot of my favorite actors have an improv background. And I thought, hang on a second, this is not coincidence. Improv has obviously led them or given them a really good foundation to be incredible performers. So then I, you know, reversed my thinking and investigated myself and then started training. There are many actors that do not like the idea of improv at all. Mm, oh, yeah. I used to be, it was my worst nightmare, sort of not having a script. And actually, I lie about um, Annie and the Groundlings being my first improv class. That was my first comedy improv class. Okay. Um, whereas my first sort of unscripted performance class was taught by Andrew Morrish. 
um, who kind of, um, he calls what he does performance improvisation. He comes from, it's a, another very long story, but he does a lot of movement and dance and text, and it's not necessarily at all comedic. He doesn't do anything like, you know, short form games or long form as we know it or Harold, but he uh, used to tour the world doing hour long improv solos not in character, just as him as a solo performer. And I forced myself to do that because one of my best friends, um, Adrian Gillett, he's an incredible performer. And I've tried to follow in his footsteps and train with his teachers. And Andrew Morrish is one of them. And yeah, I, I overcame my fear of not having a script through andrew's classes okay yeah now with improv when you did get more into the improv comedy side of things was Mm -hmm. it short form that you started with and how long was it before you got into long form i've never done a short form class i haven't done short form (gasps) never done a short form class um i somehow found myself training with monkey toast with david shaw who is the founder of monkey toast he's now gone back to canada very sadly um we went straight into long form and i remember it i know a lot of people might not like this approach um but i think i started with a week-long intensive with david shaw and he gave a big old speech about the history of comedy improv or like Chicago style long form. He teaches non-narrative as well. So I started with long form non-narrative <laughs> as opposed to the, I suppose the traditional way in is to do short form. Um, and like maybe on day one, we were straight into after the intro and some exercises of like um, working the imagination for space work, we did three line scenes. So straight in deep end. And then after the week-long intensive, I sign up to the next and to the next, up to doing the Herald. So I was like straight in with such a wonderful bunch of people. Um, And they were a combination of writers and performers. I guess in a way, it would have been quite scary for someone who had never done any performance. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Now, I always believe that improv finds people when they need improv. So I think it's it's also cool that not only did it, it find you when you needed it, but it found the right aspect of it for you. It, so it didn't say, hey, here's the short form. It was just like straight into the, the longer form stuff and it was just right for you. Uh, yeah. I guess also the other reason I was resistant to improv is that sort of fear of the stereotype of one you have to be funny you have to be gregarious you have to be an extrovert um and I'm none of those things I mean I would like to say now that I'm funny but I'm not funny in that like (laughs) yeah I'm funny every day of my life every second kind of thing and Andrew Morris laid the foundation of you can be interesting on stage if you're interested in what you're doing and then I'd also done a bunch of clowning with Philippe Gaulier and um, other clown teachers. So I was very, very used to not knowing what I was doing on stage and 
quote unquote failing and bombing. <laughs> and then I got to comedy improv and David Shaw would be, you don't have to be interesting. You don't have to be funny. Just focus on what's happening second to second. And it's really good for people with, like, I'll say, I'll speak on my behalf. I have huge um, social anxiety or general anxiety. And improv is so great because you don't have to worry about anything apart from paying attention. Um, and it was that I remember it being one of the happiest times of my life, just going, um, spending all day doing improv. That was so wonderful. I can't remember if I'm answering it, if I answered your question. What was your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, it was uh, it was a very good answer. The anxiety thing is interesting because there's lots of performers that suffer from that anxiety. And as mm. soon as you take them out of that performer that they've just become and go back to themselves, they're very different people. And it's like the classic, like some people will approach a stand-up comedian just out in the street and, and then they'll think that they're grumpy because they expect them to be that fun stand-up person at all times. But that's not how it works. People just want to be sort of quietly themselves when they're going about their daily life and save the character for the stage. Yes. But I guess, I guess within improv, you can adopt characters um and and those work great and you can just be absolutely yourself in the moment and what's beautiful is in most of the time you're completely supported by the people on stage with you the flip side is of course if you happen to be in a jam uh, an improv jam uh playing with unfamiliar people or a you know a new class or and somebody um, disrupts the trust situation and uh, and if they're not supportive it's a much bigger shock because you're 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 supposed to like build and support right yeah yeah, yeah definitely now I first encountered you earlier this year uh, when a mutual friend of ours was running some sessions and it was it was very character-based work and yes I was instantly like blown away by what I was seeing from you as an improviser. And there was maybe two or three weeks into our sessions, you did something with Duncan Cameron and it was just oh. the two of you. <laughs> yes. And it lasted for about 10 to 15 minutes. And it was this amazing story, the two of you. And it was so in sync. It was really fast at times and then really slow and nuanced at other times. And I just sat back and I was like, I think this is perhaps one of the greatest improv performances I've ever seen. And there was like three people there to enjoy it. And it still blows my mind. I still talk about that session today. Oh, wow. Never captured and never again to happen, right? Yeah. Um, well, Duncan, first of all, is a joy to perform with. And I do also remember that session with fondness. I mean, I don't think it was just a duo, our mutual friend, our other mutual friend, Steve. Um, he was kind of, I guess, directing it from the outside and yeah. sort of calling time jumps and scenes. Um, but Duncan and I have also, we both trained uh, at the, uh, I call Philippe Gollier, my French pronunciation is terrible. He's got so much experience of being on stage and his comic timing is amazing. Um, and I, he's one of the 
I was going to say he's one of the few people, but there are quite a lot of people I feel entirely safe with on stage. Um, and it's just about paying attention to what the other person is doing, right? So in terms of his, um, he's so fast, but if we're both paying attention to what the other is doing, you can achieve physical synchronicity and like, um, and we both have a bizarre brain. We, we, we both have bizarre brains. And I think we enjoy that so much about each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're currently in Hollyoaks. Yes. I'd like to talk to you a bit about that. Sure. First of all, because I'm always fascinated by improv and does it infiltrate things? And, and I want to know, is there much scope for improv in something like a soap opera? I can't talk about soaps in general, but on Hollyoaks, I think there is scope to discuss um, the details of the scene before we shoot it. So we turn up, we've had the scripts, we turn up, we do a line run, we sort of tweak the lines and make sure they sit comfortably. We do a, a rehearsal in the space. And that doesn't sound like improv, but then <laughs> as you're doing it, you can go, oh, I'm going to try this. So I suppose that the the aspect of trying stuff out or proposing things, that's a very improv culture, isn't it? You propose things, you throw things into the space. Um, so I, I feel that I am able to, to propose things and to try things out. And then we kind of lock, lock things down. Often, though, because it is a tight structure of have a, however many minutes we have to create because it goes out five days a week. It's yeah. very tight. Um, there isn't a huge amount of space, I think, for, say, physical comedy or, like, you can't say too much that's off script because it has to sort of uh, get okayed by compliance and by the channel uh, that's sort of commissioned us. And then... Uh, yeah, so there's lots of rules, but we kind of tend to run run through options before we actually film. And then I don't have any control about what gets edited, um, but I can certainly propose it on the ground. Um, I would say, though, because it's so tightly, tightly, um, what's the word? Tightly written in terms of the formula per episode, there might not be space for comedy for example or for character silences because it's a very action-driven show so lots and lots of plot um and you get to learn you get to know the characters across episodes as opposed to yeah this is a bad example i'm not explaining <laughs> it properly like you know like if you watch independent films oh so i was watching desperately seeking susan recently and um, Madonna is a character who's introduced right at the beginning, and she sort of like turns up in a new in in a city, and she's sort of like washing, freshening up in a public toilet, and then she revels in sort of drying her armpits in a sort of hand dryer. That's a character deta detail which she may or may not have improvised on the spot, but I would say if you want to create one episode of a uh, so a soap 
that might be the first thing to get cut because it's not plot. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good example. So it sounds to me like a soap in many ways is a bit like improv because improv it's done and then you move on. You don't dwell on it, and there's so much material to get through in a soap it's sort of done you move on you don't dwell on it whereas if you're working on a film mm. there's a lot more time to focus on particular things interesting i mean <laughs> i really can't speak on behalf of the writers or the story execs but it does feel someone was um who who is studying uh, screenwriting was feeding back to me that they have to watch Hollyoaks every day as part of their masters okay. just to work out a uh, story structure and they've said that it's kind of like improv in that let's just think about the next most it's like a game of consequences as it were so you don't dwell on what's happened before yeah. and you know that there's always going to be a fresh audience because the audience is quite young so it's not as though people I mean, again, I don't have the hard data, but I don't think people watch it from when they're 14 to 80. So you always have new audiences. So you can think, repeat things or like have someone marry five times because the current audience won't have remembered, you know, the first marriage, for example. So it's very much like, oh, yes. So someone's betrayed someone. What? Let's build on that. So it's like a yes and type attitude of, what else could happen? What else could happen? Um, so I guess there's that sort of excitement around it. I don't know if that's the same for the other British soaps. From what I remember of EastEnders, it's very, very rooted in character, yeah. right? So you're like, what would these characters do given these circumstances? And then, and the cast is much smaller than EastEnders. So I feel the characters have to behave uh consistently whereas i think hollyoaks can spin on a dime is that the phrase turn turn on a dime oh yeah yeah and with like i guess um i mean i haven't watched an actual telenovela but um jane the virgin is an example where you have all these like surprises like characters who are baddies can like become like the 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 goodies you know I think whatever is interesting and joyful. I would love to do a tele telenovela or or a melodrama of some sort. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that Hollyoaks has quite a small cast because no, when no, I... Hollyoaks has a large cast. I was, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say I when I looked into it earlier, I was like, wow, Hollyoaks has a massive cast. Yes. No, I mean compared to. I think it's the largest cast compared to things like Corey or Emmerdale or EastEnders. Okay. Hollyoaks has got several families and it's about, what, 50, 60, 70 cast members? It's <laughs> massive. Because <laughs> I, I was looking through and I was like, wow, there's there's so many people. How can they all sort of get enough airtime? I bet there's half the cast you haven't even worked with, right? Oh, yeah. More than half I haven't worked with. I mean, people are being murdered all the time, so <laughs> it keeps things fresh. See, I'm an Australian soap fan. I grew up watching <laughs> Neighbours and Home and Away. They are my absolute passions in terms of um, soaps. But Neighbours has sadly just left our screens recently, mm. which I'm still very sad about. But you're getting a Neighbours cast member on Hollyoaks. 
Yes. I mean, I was a home and away girl. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm still a home Um, and away guy too. I still watch that. Yeah. I guess I never... I never watched soaps when I when I grew up in Malaysia, but when I got to England, it was a thing to do, right? After school, put the telly on, and there, there you go. You've got Neighbours at Home and Away. Yeah. Yeah. And very small casts in those shows. I don't remember. I think I mainly watched it for the weather. I'm like, oh, beach. <laughs> oh, God. I, I'm, in the, I'm in the Midlands, and it's grey and rainy. I'll just like live vicariously through Australian soaps. I think the funny thing about the beach in Home and Away as well mm. is I think a lot of the time it's actually freezing cold and they're making them walk around in like trunks and bikinis and things and <laughs> pretend that they're surfing. And then that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> as soon as the camera stops rolling, they're there with like a, a hot chocolate and a blanket around them. Yeah. Yeah. Although I did ha- have the opportunity to go there in 2019 and <gasps> wow. it was gloriously sunny. It was super hot and I got to see some of the characters uh, filming and I got to meet some of them. So that was a special day for me. What? How did you manage that? I just happened to be there on a Tuesday and <laughs> a, a Tuesday is one of the days that they actually do on location filming at the beach. So I got on a bus, which was just a public bus. It was 80 stops to get there because it's right on on a peninsula. So I went from Sydney on this bus and I was just walking around. I walked up to the lighthouse and then I came down to where the diner area is and the pier and I saw Alf. Oh my gosh. It was Alf Stewart, Marilyn. Oh my gosh. I was so excited. (laughs) Uh, yeah, Alf, Marilyn and Leah were like filming some scenes and then some other characters were coming over to meet some crowds that are gathered and they were all super nice. Yeah, so it was a really positive experience. Oh, I'm so jealous. Wow. Love it. <laughs> uh, and I did the Neighbours tour as well, but it was the Easter break, so there was no opportunity to meet any cast members. But I did get they to go They get in. holidays? <laughs> They get an Easter break, apparently. Uh, but I wow. did get to go, got to go in and see sets that you wouldn't normally get to see if they were filming. So, you know, oh, okay, nice. th- there was that. Yeah. But but then it's no more anyway, because it's all gone. <laughs> Neighbours. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you're getting a, a Neighbours cast member in the Hollyoaks because they're bringing back something. So I used to watch Hollyoaks when I was younger. And in fact, uh-huh. the, only reason, the only reason I stopped watching was because there was a point in my life where I had to choose... Do I watch Home and Away or do I watch Hollyoaks? Oh my gosh. Because of scheduling <laughs> conflicts. So I chose right. Home and Away. I'm sorry, yep. Hollyoaks fans. Um, and came away from Hollyoaks just because it was a time before you could properly like record things and go to yes, up telly yes, and yes. stuff. Um, so I fell out of the swing of things a bit. Um, but... Well, some of the characters are still there. You can just like hook them yeah, I've seen. if you want. But there was a big uh, like university element to it back when I watched it. And that's what I read yes. is coming back to it. Lots of younger characters through the university. Oh, okay. Okay, that's interesting. They don't tell me anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did hear someone say, oh, you know, it used to be more university-based, but we don't have any university student characters at the moment. Um, yeah, so that would be nice because we have, I guess, at the moment on screens, you have like high school age and older people or just people floating around with kind of miscellaneous jobs, but no one who's actually sort of a student. Yeah, like a university student. 
And it sounds like your character's been through quite a lot already. I was looking through sort of like the general storylines that you've been involved with. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, like it, it's at the time of writing the article, you'd been in like 63 episodes or something like that. And I was like, wow, yeah. all of this happened in like 63 episodes. <laughs> That's a lot. It's fast. Like if you watch um, any one episode, because Holyoke's is likes to highlight issues like social issues there'll be about five um, issues um, touched on per episode it's fast yeah Um, yeah so it's it's one of those things when you're in a soap it's quite time consuming and I must feel at times that like time isn't your own if you get called in to do extra things is that difficult to sort of work around sometimes well it's uh, the grass is always green scenario, isn't it? When I was a freelancer, I'm like, oh gosh, I never know when I'm going to work again. I mean, I'm still a freelancer now, but I know I've got like a, a longer contract. Um, but now, you know, technically I'm on call Monday to Friday. That's like a regular job. So, so I have just, I have no idea how regular people fit things into their lives because I have a permanently undone to-do list um you know but if I just tell my remind myself look I have a I have a day job and I just have to do things in the evenings and weekends like other people however it's not nine to five some days I'm at work 12 hours a day so that that is hard yeah yeah and now something else that you are very big into um pushing are southeast asians sort of on tv on screen and i think that's fantastic and i just want to talk to you about that a little bit and and find out different initiatives you're a part of different things that you've done gosh um i have to credit Daniel York Lowe, who is an actor and an advocate and activist. He's a also a writer and poet and composer. I mean, he does also we're all multi-hyphenates now, aren't we? Um when I first got into acting, so this is a bit of a preamble, you know when you're sort of new and you don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Or or actually just in life, you kind of go. I never really categorized myself as a Chinese person until I got labeled it ex- from outside. When I was at drama school, um, it was a very useful exercise to sort of be made aware of the reality of the world, i.e. we're put into boxes. Yeah. Uh, actors need to have a brand. I mean, this is all arguable, but... <laughs> There was a there was an exercise where our, te- our teacher would say, "So, what product would you advertise?" And then the class would go, "Vera, electronics, because I'm Asian, oh. and that's what you associate Asians with, right?" Um, so then I was like, "All oh, right," and a whole bunch of uh, agents and photographers would be like, "Why don't you just wear a little like traditional outfit to, to sort of signal to casting directors and directors that you're Asian?" And I'm like, "Do I not already look Asian?" <laughs> so it was a, a many years of just grappling with 
this sort of category, this being uh, labeled. Um, but I never wanted to rock the boat until it became very clear to me that there is um, what some people refer to as a bamboo ceiling within the industry. So not just a glass ceiling if you're female presenting, but a bamboo ceiling. Bamboo because bamboo is like Asian-y. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've done some really big jobs uh, due to luck and whatever reasons the universe has led me to have done some really great significant acting jobs yet I still get um asked to play servants um and I happened to end up working with Daniel Yorklow um who before I met him or worked with him I was like oh he's that angry he's that angry East Asian guy actually even the term East Asian is new he's an angry Chinese guy <laughs> who's always like angry and then you I met him and I realized that you know he's angry for good reason there is discrimination um East and Southeast Asians are considered we fall behind between the cracks when people talk about diversity and, and inclusion. Yeah. And there is this sort of like false divide, this this false um, idea that light-skinned people of color aren't really people of color, um, that East and Southeast Asians are like white adjacent, which is one of my least favorite phrases. Um, in America, there's the phrase model minority, and so we're pitted against um, African-Americans, you know. So there's all this sort of divide and conquer nonsense based on, like, the idea that there's a pie and that we're all scrabbling for a piece of pie, as opposed to abundance theory where we can all make space for each other. Gosh, <laughs> this is very complicated. <laughs> so I guess I became politicized and aware of inequalities and injustices through working with people who had come before me right not just Daniel yeah. Yorklow but he's the most prominent and well-known but other Chinese actresses I remember being a young uh, performer and this wonderful woman was like you know I got told at drama school that I would never ever be in a Shakespeare and at the time I was like oh, I will be. I was so arrogant. And then when I came up to um against these barriers myself, I'm like, well, you know, we have to stand together and do something about it. So it's not just about my racial group or category. It's like any group that's marginalized unjustly, you know, I think we need to sort of ask the question, who is not in the room and why? Yeah. And I think you know, the world is changing and it's changing very quickly. And, you know, it's very different now to when I was a child. And some places they've caught up with the change very quickly. And some places they are still far behind. Well, it's very hard because all of us have been brought up. You know, it's, this is not something you can just change overnight. It's difficult. I know it makes me nervous talking about race. I'm sure it makes white people nervous as well. And like everyone's afraid of being cancelled. Everyone's afraid of making mistakes. But I think this uh, reminds me of my, I guess, improv and clowning uh, training, I guess. We will make mistakes. Mistakes will definitely be made. 
<laughs> There's no way of getting uh, identity politics right all the time. But it's about continuing the dialogue, being honest, open, supportive, kind, compassionate, all the things that you have in an improv space, for example. Mm. Yeah. And so, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to train ourselves to be okay with making mistakes. Yeah. And I guess you grow up with certain things and it's hard to realize that where you grew up and how things are aren't the way that things are everywhere. For example, when I grew up, I grew up in a small town called Hollywell in North Wales and I went to a Catholic school mm-hmm. and everybody in the school was white until one day a Brazilian boy arrived and then there was one one boy that was different from everybody else and we we, we just accepted him and it was fine like there, were, there was no major like racial incidents or anything and there was no major confusion but it was just there was one person and that was kind of what it was like I went to high school and it didn't there, there weren't many more it was predominantly just white there were mm-hmm. maybe there were maybe Italians and, and, and things like that, but everybody kind of looked the same. And then I remember when I first got into teaching in my early 20s and one of my very first classes. So this was in Wrexham, which is a more diverse place because it's basically a city. I don't think it is a city. It always wants to be a city, but it's not quite a city <laughs> yet. Yeah. Um, and it has a hospital. And it has a cathedral and it has all of these things that you you would get in a city. So the ecosystem there is different. I turned up for my first session and I wasn't just looking at a room of white children. I was looking at a room of of children of of all different races and colors. And I was doing my my bit, introducing the clasps, blah, 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 blah. A child puts their hand up and says, oh, sir, so-and-so doesn't actually understand what he's saying. She doesn't speak English. And I was like, what? I hadn't even considered the fact that there might be someone in the room that doesn't even speak the language. And then it turns out she was Portuguese. She hadn't been in the country long. And in that school, there was uh, a big um, Filipino community, a big Portuguese community, Indian community. uh, And it was a real hive of, of diversity. That's lovely. Also, what happened to the, the little girl did you say who who didn't speak English like that must be so hard right like turning up in the country and having to join school I mean did she have access to extra classes and support yeah we have something in this area called the EAL service the English additional language service mm-hmm. and so anyone that that comes in and doesn't speak the language they get access to this extra support she was a very bright young lady and by the end of that school year she could speak very good English the reverse happened in the school I uh came to when I got to England I came to do my sixth form and there was a a girl from Malaysia who had started just before me doing her GCSEs they assumed that her English would be rubbish so I think at the time, I mean, I don't understand the education system or what it was at the time, but you, you go into bands. Yeah. So they put her in a lower band, which kind of meant, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that even if she scored really high in that band, she couldn't get like like a top grade for her GCSEs or something. Yeah. And they never moved her out. And even though she was like so bright and her English was impeccable. 
<laughs> she didn't get good GCSEs. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I always remember there was a training session I went to and it was someone from the EAL team. Mm-hmm. And she was she was Polish because there was a big mm-hmm. Polish contingent. And to let us try and understand what the children go through, she did a whole training session for us and she spoke entirely in Polish. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we had to try and uh, just model through that session with her speaking to us in that language. And then she also taught us about colloquialisms and how even if you understand the language, there's loads of sayings that just don't make sense unless you grow up in the area. Yes, it's so, sort of, I didn't know what a quid was oh, yeah. when I got to England. Um, I mean, English is my first language. But also, apart from colloquialisms, um, it's it's cultural, isn't it? The way one communicates. Yeah. So I remember being in a theatre. I mean, even today, but a few years ago, I remember being backstage after a show thinking, I have no idea what is happening. We're all standing around having a chat but I don't know what is happening. We're just saying niceties to each other. <laughs> it's a cultural thing, but what is happening is not what is being said. Um, and I guess one must experience it uh, like across class as well. You know, if, if someone who, uh, I remember a friend of mine who's identified as being working class would, would feel super uncomfortable in what was, I would say, a middle class environment because it's not just the language it's like what what are the interactions I don't understand I don't know how to do it I don't know how to mimic it I don't know how to um exist in this space and I guess cultural references form Mm -hmm. a lot of people's conversation and I get this a lot with uh Seki my beautiful fiance who has an amazing grasp of the English language, like far greater than my grasp because she studied it in a way that I didn't study it because there's lots that's just assumed in in sort of the school system. Oh, you've learned this. Mm -hmm. It's like that because it is that. Whereas Seki's learned it as a second language and she's learned it to a depth that I just don't understand. But then I forget that things I reference go completely over her head and sometimes she's like what are you talking about and I'm like oh yeah that was just a random 90s tv show that clearly didn't air <laughs> in, the, in the Philippines yes yeah uh I often remind people that I didn't grow up here and I kind of make a joke of it and I don't know whether I should stop making a joke of it I say things like oh I'm a I'm a foreigner um <laughs> kind of othering myself um, but I can I guess I do that so that the people feel not don't feel bad. But like I guess why should I? I mean, one they shouldn't feel bad anyway. They should just go. Oh, okay, you didn't grow up here, so you don't know it. But I guess I worry. Okay. Oh yes, I know why. But my point is that I am trying still to be to fit in slash be accepted even though I've lived in this country for several decades. And I can't shake the idea that I don't fit in in a lot of spaces. 
And of course, we could unpick that and go, oh, is it your personality or is it because you have grown up somewhere else or et cetera, et cetera. Um, Combination, I guess. Yeah. So what was that like when you first moved over? Did you move with your family? Did you come by yourself? I came with my with myself <laughs> I came by myself my sister was already here she's my um elder sister um so she was kind of I guess a responsible-ish adult um yeah my my entire family apart from my sister is still in Malaysia um yeah but I came over went to boarding school. I feel that I need to explain that I'm not a rich Asian. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that especially with Chinese and East Asians, uh, the the stereotype is that we're rich. And then with my accent, they think I'm posh. And I'm like, no, I was just colonized. <laughs> I speak like this because my parents are brainwashed and um, refuse to let, I mean, that this is the language I spoke at home. I used to have to like study a pronunciation dictionary because my parents are English teachers and they very much felt that England was the best place on earth. Great Britain. Woo. Um, and then I f- basically forced some poor principal in a terrible school in England to give me a scholarship. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. So I, because I firmly believed that I had to be in England because it was the only place for me because um, I had grown up reading British books. No, English books, English books, English magazines. And just firmly believed that there was no point being anywhere else. That was the extent to which I was indoctrinated that's a strong word i'm going to use i'm going to stick to that um yeah so i i mentioned i used to teach a lot of filipino children when i was Mm -hmm. in wrexham and i remember having a really great conversation with a girl when she was about 10 and it was about her accent because Mm -hmm. she was filipino but she'd grown up in the area but she had an american accent and I just sort of mentioned it to her in a conversation and she said, oh, it's because we all learn our our English from American TV shows. (laughs) And I was like, oh, really? And she said, yeah. So it just kind of sticks. Yes. Um, I know I sounded more British. I sounded like the Queen. (laughs) Um, And because people... Um, because of a because uh, I f- felt the class system and the prejudice against rich posh people, I dumbed down my accent to fit in, and uh, and I, you know, before all the Trump stuff, um, I guess people would think, oh, Americans, they're they're harmless. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also did live with Americans in England and so then I started I started watching American TV but I didn't grow up watching American TV I grew up watching yes Prime Minister and <sighs> um Mind Your Language oh gosh and um other oh um Shakespeare and E.M. Foster period drama type things yeah. so growing up did you have a perception of like British humor did you see it as a different humor to other types of humor or was all humor just kind of the same 
uh, I started thinking about British humor, say, versus American humor, maybe more recently. Um, I would say in general, I prefer American comedies. And okay. this is my theory. <laughs> <laughs> British humor in general is, oh, we're all bumbling idiots but we bumble we bumble on and we don't change we don't go on a character journey per se okay. but we're, we're fine and we get the goal yeah. whereas american comedy is we're an idiot but because we go on this character journey we develop into less of an idiot and then we achieve stuff um and That's... so I, I gravitate more <laughs> towards the latter because I think, yes. Um, also, I feel that British humor is is tied in with like a post-Empire depression of like, can't fix anything. So we have to just just put our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 la. We can't fix anything, but we're still okay, right? Yay, thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grossly generalizing here. It's a really interesting take. See, I, I discussed this recently on the podcast and mm -hmm. I have my own theory about the differences between British humour and American humour. And yeah. what I think the difference is American humour is, is very in your face and it's sort of, hey, this is a joke. I'm telling you what the joke is. Isn't that a funny joke? Uh -huh. Whereas British humour, it, there's a subtlety to it and it's like something will happen and it's like, Hey, did you get the joke? There was a joke in there. Did you see the joke? Is so it's not an obvious joke necessarily. There are some great physical uh, comedians uh, in the UK, obviously, but I think the more wordy based humor is a lot more. Did you get the joke? Mm, I I would say so. Apart from the jokes, I guess the tone of British humor I find is very painful. There's lots of pain and angst and like so faulty towers. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's so stressful, <laughs> right? He, yeah. Oh, sorry, he never changes. It's just lovable, but he's just continually stressed, and I feel sad. <laughs> he's never <laughs> going to be less stressed. Um. Actually, I was thinking about German humor recently. Again, generalization, but that comes from sort of like looking at the absurd, observational absurdity, calling it uh, calling it as it is, and so the humor is is um, it's dry, but it's sort of truthful. But I see what you mean about American stuff being quite sort of broad. But I suppose I love I gravitate towards joy and delight and like British stuff can tend to be a bit wry and a bit overthinky actually when I started with uh David Shaw's improv he would again generalize he's like stop thinking stop trying to be clever because those are the pitfalls that a lot of British improvisers fall into and you get to like overthinking plot and Plot is never as interesting as uh, feelings and relationships. Yeah. And I, I agree. But, you know, it's a, maybe a taste thing. I watched a documentary series a few years back, and it was mm -hmm. called Everybody Hates the English. And it was the, com 
it was the comedian um al murray who basically he went to wales he went to scotland he went to ireland he went to germany he went to france sort of all of these countries that sort of england think they hate those countries hate us and what yeah. was what was really interesting because you mentioned german humor is when they went mm -hmm. to germany and they were looking at the german like the british think that there's this massive beef with the germans the germans couldn't really care less about the english <laughs> <laughs> like they've got a bigger rivalry with like holland and, and countries like that right yes whereas english people think that there's this massive oh yeah it's, it's england and it's germany um don't mention the war <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah but what was what was interesting was because i'm welsh and so yes i was going to say there's no english people on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> when it came to the sort of the mm -hmm. conclusion the country with the most beef the most legitimate beef with england was actually wales because it was wales mm -hmm. that was the most recently oppressed country out of all of the countries well yeah because a lot of time people talk about britain and i'm like mm. I think you mean England, because if you really took the time to think about Wales or Ireland or Scotland, it's so different, right? The yeah. history is different. The relationship to um, imperialistic forces is different. And um, I mean, I don't know whether this is true, but when I was in Wales a few years ago, there was this guy wearing a cowboy hat and someone was like, oh, yeah, because Wales kind of has its back to England and it like faces towards America and sort of like a lot of times you see farmers with cowboy hats I'm like what <laughs> oh okay I mean I buy it I don't know whether it's true well here's here is a, a true story well at least I mm -hmm. believe it to be true in Chester yes the town hall has a clock but it only has three faces it doesn't have a face on one side of the clock and that is the side that faces Wales. And the reason being, the English don't want to give the Welsh the time of day. Oh, no, rude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And there or, is... Or... <laughs> oh, that's so mean. <laughs> there is still some kind of law where you can mm. shoot a Welshman with a bow and arrow between like one and three o'clock in the morning if you're stood on the walls of Chester or something like that. Right. Yes. I suppose when I think of clocks, I think about um, train travel. So maybe there just weren't any trains coming from Wales to Chester. They're like, <laughs> nope, don't want to go there. Oops. I don't know. <laughs> that was not a diss to Chester. <laughs> See, I love yeah. Chester. Growing up, mm -hmm. Chester was my city to go to. And mm -hmm. I didn't think anything different. It's only as an adult I've learned, oh, there's actually, yeah, quite a rivalry. Um, but between... These, between sort of that side of the border and my okay, side of the border yes yes because you go across the border like several times a week right yeah and isn't and it, it such a reminder that borders are almost for them <laughs> that borders are arbitrary lines in the ground yeah and i guess those sorts of issues mm -hmm. generally only rear their heads i think with football crowds these days because there's a massive Wrexham Chester thing whenever Wrexham and Chester play they have to get loads more police and it's simply because of this old history between Chester and Wrexham it's crazy right I also felt uh, the pressure of this uh, invisible line when I was driving into Wales um, showing 
Sonia, Wales. And I, 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 in my head, I was like, we'll cross the border and suddenly it will just be rolling hills and beauty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wales does have industrial parks too. Yay. It does. It does indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because there's some beautiful places in England where you'd look at it and swear that you were in Wales, you know? Yeah. I mean, I do think Wales is special though, landscape-wise. Well, I think... For me, the the great thing about Wales is how small it is, yet how mighty it feels. Like it's castles, it's 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 mountains, it's it's green space. It mm-hmm. just feels special. I like that you use the word mighty. It's about a sense of uh, identity. I think I feel like in Liverpool, Liverpudlians are like we are. St- I mean, some people don't like the word Scouse, but like a lot of them are like, we are from here. We're Liverpudlian, we're Scousers. Um, I feel like Glaswegians feel very Glaswegian. They have a sense of identity. Um, I don't know a lot of people who go, we, I am an English person. That feels like there's some sort of like vacuum or sort of loss or, uh, yeah, which I think ties into humor. There's some sort of apologetic um, vibe going on. Yeah, no, I think there is obviously a long storied history between England mm-hmm. and the rest of the UK and sort of the English trying to take over, Scotland trying to take over, uh, Wales trying to take over Ireland. And I think part of that comes from the, the sort of the, the proud culture and mm-hmm. like most Welsh people can tell you when St. David's Day is. Most Scottish people can tell you when St. Andrew's Day is. Uh, but I'm I'm speaking generally here. Mm-hmm. I've I've encountered a lot of English people that don't know when it's their national day, when it's their Saint's Day. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea. Interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um now, just going back to the Asian side of things, I'm yes. actually going to the Philippines next. Ah, uh, when? Uh, next Easter. Okay, great. And I'm super excited about going there. And I'm going to be going to meet Seki's family and mm-hmm. see where she grew up and, and things like that. But for me, it's going to be a massive culture shock. So the thing, the sorts of things, I, I mean, I'm only going for two weeks, so it's not going to be quite the same. But I'm just excited about the culture shock and, and I've heard Seki tell me stories. So I'm going to go out there and sort of actually get firsthand experience of what it's like. Mm-hmm. I went to Nepal a few years back on a, yes. a a trip that I was setting up a link with my school, with the school out there. And I traveled and spent a week there. And that was a massive culture shock to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just excited about continuing my journey of, exploring the wider world and sort of opening my mind more yeah um when I ended up studying anthropology kind of by accident at university I actually when I studied um sociology at a level without even knowing what it was (laughs) (laughs) it was such a an education to go oh the way I was brought up is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. It's not necessarily true. I am allowed to question stuff. Like even basic things like um, 
the concept of numbers or um whether or not the newspapers always tell the truth you know <laughs> i grew up believing that the newspapers were absolutely true um and there's a comedian i admire who has made a lot of sort of quote unquote mistakes around sort of identity politics through her career, Chelsea Handler. Um, but she seems to be on a mission to educate herself and to use her platform. So she puts herself in the position of being an idiot publicly and go uh, and 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 go and seeks out situations and things where she's learning. Um, she's very aware. I guess she doesn't know things. And so I think it is helpful to, if you're not reading, if you're not traveling, like how else are you going to learn about stuff? There's the internet. That's that's really inaccessible. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. So I'm glad you're you're excited about it. Oh yeah, I'm massively excited about it. And I've got two cousins that live in Japan. And oh my goodness, Japan's amazing. It's I, amazing. Yeah, I hear their stories. They tell me about it. And they are both tall, lanky, pale skin <laughs> and ginger hair. So they're like the opposite of of the people they encounter. Yes. And I remember one of them just told me when he first went there, like people just wouldn't stop staring at him. Everywhere he mm-hmm. went, people were just staring at him because he was different. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, it, that all that kind of stuff really fascinates me. So yeah, I'm excited to, to go and just experience another culture for a bit. I guess I've always thought if someone looks different, whatever, whatever, for whatever reasons, if they've got green eyes or if they're orange or purple like like you might not know what kind of creature they are but I think it's something to do with giving space or you don't even need to what am I trying to say you don't need to be friends with someone who doesn't look like you you just need to not be an enemy right you need to sort of I just think yeah, you don't need to understand someone. You don't need to understand another creature if we want to go into like the animal world and things like that to go, okay, you have feelings, you have needs, you have a different way of doing things. I'm just going to sort of try and coexist with you. And yeah, I think that's so, that's, I, I yeah, I mean, it just makes you think of why are people afraid of other people? of other people it reminds me of something i often tell children mm-hmm. i teach and I, I basically tell them because you know children i'm currently teaching eight nine-year-olds for the last seven years i've taught nine ten-year-olds and there's always li- little spats and all that kind of thing and i basically just teach them look you don't all have to be best friends you don't all have to be friends you just need to learn to get along like that's yeah <laughs> you don't have to be mean to someone because they're different to you in any way you just get along with them yeah I specifically remember uh, when I was doing long form improv for the first time you know there's always like 
in in a new group you're like oh, I don't know if I want to play with that person we don't seem like the same kind of person but then in an improv space you go up and you're you come from different backgrounds and a different sensibility around comedy or whatever but you because you're listening and the task is to build it becomes such a beautiful exercise and um that's why I think improv is magical and important. Yeah, uh, the fact that you can just come from completely different backgrounds and just create mm. something special, it is cool. And one thing I have to actively try and do is when I'm in a long form set, really focus on what my pun brain is doing because <laughs> <laughs> I love puns and Sometimes people might think, oh, he's throwing in lots of puns into the long form stuff. But what they don't realize is the amount I've actually held in, <laughs> like some slip out, <laughs> but I'm always yes. holding so many more in. <laughs> yes. Interesting. I wonder if there's a way of you capturing those puns that don't get to slip out. Oh, I don't know. Mm. So what does your improv future look like? I have been... Uh, in the short to medium term, I have been working on my solo improv practice. Uh, but I've been working on that with our mutual friend, Steve. So we've been supporting ourselves, um, developing our styles and our practice. And I am going. we're going to start doing open rehearsals. And, and I would love to do like a monthly sort of shared space community social type event um where I can also perform regularly because that's the point of performing really um you I want to share it with an audience and like sort of build something with an audience so that's the short to medium term mm, I don't know I I I've never um had the opportunity to be part of a team long term because covid kind of hit when I was sort of starting up with teams um so I would I would like to have that and build a show that could sort of maybe go and sort of tour to improv festivals um i want to start teaching more not so much um beginners improv but i would like to teach things that i've learned from other aspects of performance and sort of like share that with improvisers um sort of stagecraft um clowning um yeah and the andrew morris stuff which i find so interesting and helpful so yeah, so teaching, sharing, and hopefully down the line, sort of more performing at a professional level uh, with hopefully a team. Yeah. Awesome. And as an mm. actor, is improv something that you sort of actively sort of state on your CV? Is it something that you push? Hey, I can I can offer this. Ooh. I. Mm. I don't I I I haven't been hawking out my CV. I guess that's my agent's job. But um I know that I've got two agents, one for commercials and one for dramatic work, and they both know that I'm very comfortable with this sort of thing. And my okay. commercials agent is specifically is like really 
keen on people with comedic experience. Um, I think it's much more recognized in America, right? Because they've got that sort of longer yeah. history of improv and they have like bigger improv schools. But I don't, I don't think, I think the route into, I reckon that there's still sort of an idea that either someone is a dramatic actor or a comedic actor or a character actor and that I can't seem to access or I haven't yet been able to access uh, comedic acting roles because maybe there is a tendency to hire people who are stand-ups or or who have a proven track record. Yeah. So um, it doesn't seem that I need to push that aspect on my CV, but definitely, again, pre-pandemic, because I was doing so much improv, other improvisers who had gone on to do sort of acting work were recommending me. So that's, you know... I guess what I'm saying is you don't always get work from your CV. You get work because you're working with people. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a very good bit of advice there, I think. So if people just keep pushing themselves out there and getting with the right people, that could ultimately lead to a job. Well, not even just pushing themselves. Like follow the thing like that is that you're curious about and challenges you and that you get joy from, right? And yeah. then you're like then that will lead you to the people who really bring out the best in you. And then they'll be like, oh, great, I can recommend you. So there's no point pushing yourself to people who you don't actually want to work with. So, I mean, there was a time in my career where I was like, I'm just going to write up to all these theatres or casting directors, whatever. And I'm like, oh, actually, I don't think I don't think that's going to work. I don't think we have the same values. Um, I don't think you appreciate my style or, you know, that you're not interested in me. So... Whereas I guess um, once you fall in with the people who are similar to you in terms of sensibility and taste, then that's that sort of generates more work, I guess. Yeah. I think with improv, one of the cool things is what can work really well is, mm-hmm. is the fact that people are very different. Whereas when I compare it to when I was younger and I was in a band, my band was basically a pop rock band. But getting a gig that paid where we could play our own music was very mm-hmm. difficult. But if we wanted to go and do covers, easy. There's lo- loads <laughs> of paid gigs. But I didn't want to do that. But there were rock nights and there were indie nights. They were like the main things where you'd get bands playing their own material. And I would get as gigs at rock nights. I would get as gigs at indie nights. We didn't fit the bill and we were always <laughs> sort of fighting against uh, a different crowd. But we, most of the time, I would probably say like 95% of the time, we came away and people from those crowds came over to say, oh, you're not really our sort of music, but you guys were really good. And that was always very cool. But it just used to frustrate me that we were always having to try and prove ourselves to a different crowd and and there wasn't an actual crowd like with pop rock unless you're already famous people don't want to hear your original songs yeah it is hard isn't it like even with these events that i want to start doing i'm like ah is it comedy 
Is it live art? Is it theatre? Does it matter? And I guess from previous experience of producing events and shows, it really is just, you got to just have a small, just be, be, be prepared to have a small audience for a while, but then keep doing the thing that you want to do. It's the whole, if you build it, they will come kind of thing, which I, I do believe. I do believe that. Yeah, I think so. You just got to be persistent in life and uh, keep following your dreams and things will materialize. It might not look exactly like you thought it would look like, but it it will materialize in some way. Yeah, yeah. And if it stops being enjoyable, then also have the courage to question what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love this show, for example, and this is this is sort of an offshoot of me deciding, hey, I want to get into improv and this show is a massive part of my life now. I absolutely love it because I love an opportunity. When in life do you get this kind of chance to just sit and talk with people like this? Yes. Yes. It's very hard to sort of pin people down and go, talk to me. <laughs> I'm going to ask you lots of questions about your life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to mm. bring this to a close. But before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you on social media if they want to see what you're up to? Sure. <laughs> Although I use social media for like cute puppies and things like that. Um, <laughs> on Instagram, I am at Vera Chok, V-E-R-A-C-H-O-K. On Twitter, which I don't really use very much anymore, I am Vera underscore chalk because someone is sitting on my handle. Um, I know, so rude. Maybe one day I'll be super famous and they can sell it to me. <laughs> um, but really the best place to um, find out about me and what I'm up to is my website, verachalk.org, O-R-G. Awesome. And I will say to people, go and watch Vera in Hollyoaks. I have been watching a little bit in preparation for this. And <laughs> she's incredible. She's, she's incredible. Um, thank you. I like to think that if you saw me in the street, you wouldn't recognize me from if you were a Hollyoaks fan, because I guess I feel like I am just very changeable and... Um, <laughs> You know, I am an actor. I'm playing a character. <laughs> it's not me. So, um, and that's what I, I do love about being a performer, sort of creating different realities and different people and getting to know, getting to like be paid to think about the human condition is great. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds like a great place to end this conversation. So <laughs> thank you very much. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to Vera. I absolutely loved that chat and I really appreciate the fact that she found time in her busy schedule to come on the show and, uh, you know, just have that chat with me. I say all the time what I love about the show is how I just get to talk to a massive variety of really interesting people and I take away so much from the chat and I hope that you, the listener, take away those things as well or maybe you take away different things. And these chats are always organic and I don't plan in advance what I'm going to talk about beyond the fact that I know I'll talk about improv and how people get into improv. And I can never imagine 
where the show is going to go. It goes off in so many different directions. And I know sometimes I might be touching on things that I've touched on again, but I'm always touching on these things with different people, so there's always going to be different perspectives. You might get to hear maybe me give my opinion on uh, on different topics sort of over different shows, but that's life, isn't it? And if you are a regular listener, then... I hope that you feel that you really know me after the the weeks and weeks and weeks and months or even years that you've been listening to the show. And for those that are just hearing from some of the guests for the first time, maybe you're aware of the guest, maybe you're not aware of the guest. I I love the fact that everyone comes out and is so open and that the conversations we have are just so interesting. You know, everyone has got... A fantastic story to tell and that's what I love about this show just giving people an opportunity to just open up and talk about their life talk about how they ended up where they are today and ultimately linking it all back to improv because for those of us that do it it is a massive passion and it doesn't matter what your job is what your background is if you've got a fantastic passion that is improv then you are somebody that I would love to talk to and get on the show. Uh, maybe you've not tried improv before. Maybe you're listening to the show for the first time and you think, hey, how can I get into that? Well, I'll say this. If you are interested in getting into improv or, or already involved in improv and want to try out a different improv scene, then all the information you need can be found at www.liverpoolcomedyimprov.co.uk. You can also check us out on Facebook by searching for Liverpool Comedy Improv and on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Live Comedy Improv. We have a Facebook page specific for this show. Just search for the Liverpool Comedy Improv cast on Facebook and you'll find everything you need about the show there. If you are a member of the LCI community and you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please get in touch with me or with Emma Bird and we'll make arrangements as soon as possible. And when I say that, it could be that maybe you are an actual improviser at LCI, you've been going to some of the drop-ins or taking some of the courses and you're brand new to it, or maybe you've been going for a while and just haven't uh, felt like getting your name out to us, or, or maybe you've been building to it, who knows? Or maybe you've not actually improvised, but you are a supporter and you go to the LCI shows. I'd love to hear from you as well. Anyone that just loves improv in any way, shape or form, I'm keen to get you on the show and have a chat with you. Now, if you are listening on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget, give us a five-star rating, give us a lovely positive review because it's little things like that that really help to spread our name and um, get us out there into the world. If you're interested in following me on social media in any way, shape or form, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and TikTok. Just search for at Ian Luke Jones. And I just want to take this opportunity to once again say a big thank you to Vera for coming on. I really enjoyed that chat. And with the show, I'm always excited for what's coming next. So don't forget to come back in a couple of weeks to find out who our next guest is and what we have in store. Before I go, here are some words that are wise, wise, wise. Always remember, whatever the situation, to treat life like improv. And yes, and...